0: The Almost Perfect Podcast. Welcome to the Thunderdome. Nah, welcome to the Almost Perfect Podcast, a celebration of fuck-ups, failures, and falling flat on your face. This is a podcast that believes you can learn from experience, but that experience doesn't have to be your own. Ha, I'm Bob Perfect, and I'm a functional fuckup. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes. And today we are learning from a whole bunch of people. Because it is episode 100, and we are looking back on the last 99 episodes through the lens of like a couple minutes of like 14 episodes, I think, by the time I'm done here. So yeah, this is a look back at the last two and a half, basically actually three years of the Almost Perfect podcast. I looked at my Instagram archives, you know, the memories. And it showed me that I actually, this week, three years ago, did the first interview for the Almost Perfect podcast with Bala Weinster in my lounge in Ambilo that you'll never hear because I try to plug two USB microphones into a laptop without uh, any sort of audio interface. And so only one half of that conversation is actually recorded. But we've learned we have so fucking much over this period of time. I've learned a hell of a lot about podcasting, about recording interviews with people, whether it is in person or it is over the internet. And I've also learned the limitations of noise reduction software. So together, we have gone on this long journey where... I have steadily improved, i like to think, at this uh, whole podcasting shtick, and I'd like to thank you for coming along on this journey. At whichever point you joined us, even if it is right now, if this is the first episode of the podcast you're hearing, thank you very much for coming on board. I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm coming at you after sitting in the dock for two hours, drinking some brandy and Coke, and watching New Girl on my phone whilst i wait for the electricity to come back on. It has been a very manic and hectic week for me. I managed to pick up some work this week, but the deadlines are super tight, super last minute vibes, which kind of cut into this a bit. There were going to be a few more quotes. I was maybe going to do some other things that I wanted to experiment with, but unfortunately I got to make that paper, paper. And so... That's taken up a bit of the time, but I still am very happy with what I've managed to achieve here. And in general, pretty happy with what I've managed to achieve here. You know, this has been quite a roller coaster of a journey. There's been highs, there have been lows, there have been amazing interviews, there have been cock interviews. There have been guests who I've now become friends with there have been guests who I was friends with who I now don't even speak to anymore so it has been a wild wild ride and I am as I say just grateful that you are along for the ride but I'm also like I say I am a little bit proud of myself to have managed to have achieved all of this on my own and well kind of not necessarily entirely on my own mostly on my own like I'd say 80% of this vibe is me the other 20 percent is the guests no the other nine 19 percent is a guest the other one percent is you guys you guys are the one percent is what i'm saying and we are the 99 percent fuck you give us some money that's all i'm that's all i'm saying here that is entirely the, <laughs> what what am i even saying there i don't fucking know i'm kind of a little bit nervous right now i'm kind of Hoping that you enjoy the rest of what's to come here today. Like I say, I've got a whole bunch of quotes from a whole bunch of different people that I've interviewed over the last two and a half years. And these are stories and bits that stuck out with me a little bit over the years. But also, what's kind of weird is with some of the episodes I went in thinking I was going to get a certain quote, but then listening through, I actually found other parts that I was like, you know what? I'm going to use this instead. So This is a collection of yo, just incredible stories or inspiring stories or just fun and interesting and basically stories and bits that I think represent what we have done here over the last two and a half years with the Almost Perfect podcast. Some of them are funny, some of them are very real and very personal. You know, we talk about sex, we talk about drugs, we talk about Death, life, religion, all of it. You know, this is a podcast where nothing is necessarily off topic unless you're gonna be a bit of a cunt about it. It's kind of my only my only rule is to don't be too much of a cunt about things and we're gonna have a good time on the podcast. But people have been super generous, people have been super open, super honest, super real, and that's what I am incredibly grateful for when it comes to all of this, that's so many people have shared so freely and given you and me so much like valuable information and insight and perspective and just these it's just something that's truly humbling to be a part of even though it's mostly me that's doing a lot of the work you know i One episode of these usually takes like a day and a half at least to put together between, like like I was working it out today, like between the research, the setting things up, the doing the interview, the editing, the posting it online, you know, the uploading, the writing the copy, the putting it to social media, all of those things, and the creating the little videos and stuff. So, yeah, like it's a lot of work, but it's something that's super rewarding, and especially because this is something that you support you support it over on patreon and that's i don't know if i'd still be doing this if you weren't you know if there weren't so many people that over the years have contributed to the patreon and so many people who have actually contributed throughout the time period like there are people who have been on board since almost the very beginning so once again i know i've said it a million times in this in these seven minutes i am super grateful super thankful. And I just want to say once again, thank you to all of you for supporting this. And we're gonna keep going. We're gonna act like it's gonna take another eighteen years or so at the current rate. But episode one thousand—that's that's the end goal of all of this. And I hope to hope to see many of you there at that at that goal. And who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll keep going past there. Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by you. That's right. Over at patreon.com forward slash almost perfect, there is a tier. It is called the titular titles tier. Now, this is the $10 tier. This is the big baller tier. This is a tier for the people who want to stunt on everyone else and show that they, you know, they are the ultimate supporters of the Almost Perfect podcast. Or maybe they're just like very generous people who like what I'm doing here. and want to support, you know. They might even feel a little awkward about this whole situation where I read out their names every single week on the podcast. But anyway, here we go. Shout-outs to the key group, Neil Green. He's He actually features in this episode. You'll, you're going to hear him pretty soon. Shout-outs to Neil Green, who is the key group. A bit of a downgrade since he used to be working at East Coast Radio, but we, we love having him here at Almost Perfect Media. Also, shout out to Karan Slemon who is the almost perfect hedge fund manager. Also, another ex-guest of this podcast. You can go check his episode out under Parable, P-A-R-A-B-Y-L. Shout out to Kat Jenkin. Wow, another ex-guest. It's almost like I interview people and then they feel so thankful for the opportunity to express themselves on this wonderful platform that they decide to support it going forward. Wow not that everyone's done that i'm not guilt tripping the rest of you who are listening to this now or anything but you know shout outs to kat jenkin who is the inevitable ruler of the universe and queen swifty shout outs to karan chetty who is the assistant to the regional manager shout outs to chief sales officer of subtle heresies in the greater Overberg region rousseau rousseau has definitely been one of the longest standing members of the titular titles tier so especially shout outs to you bro much appreciated. Another long-standing member is Stephen Olafia, who is the executive producer. I would hope the executive producer has been around for a while, so shout-outs to you. shout out to Vishendra Nadu. I'm actually going to read an email from him in just a little bit. He is a spiritual advisor, and he's done some great work in the last little while. Much-needed work. Shout-outs to Tyron Love, who is the pantsless weasel. I did say last week we need to get that weasel some pants. So I think we get another one or two people on the titular titles tier that can be the pantsed weasel. I think a pants weasel would still be pantsless because if you be pants someone, you're taking the pants off. So yeah, either way, this weasel's not going to get pants anytime soon. Also, shout outs to Julian, who is the king, longtime supporter of this podcast, longtime supporter of a lot of the projects that I've done. I obviously greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to the time that we get to. Share some beers together after a show again. I am really looking forward to that. And lastly, shout out to our anonymous benefactor. Yes, we've got someone who doesn't actually want to be named. If you can figure out who this mysterious person is, I will give you a clue here. They have actually been involved in some sort of um, the look and feel of the Almost Perfect podcast. So if you can figure that out, who the anonymous benefactor is, hit me up, up at almostperfect.co.za and I'll send you a pack of stickers. So that is that's, That is the titular titles tier. You can also support this podcast by buying a mug. They are 100 Rand each. They've got the Almost Perfect logo on them. They look slick as fuck and they are printed by the print room here in Durban. 10 Rand from each sale goes to Sasunke. Now, Sasanke so is an organization that is by sex workers, for sex workers, and they are working to decriminalize sex work here in South Africa. So go check them out at Sasanke.org.za, and after you've done that and you've donated a bunch of money to them, come back to me and buy a mug and know that a little bit of that cash goes to them as well. So with that out the way, it's time to get into this episode of the podcast, which actually starts with two wonderful emails that I received one from an ex guest of the podcast and one from a patron and a friend of mine who I played magic with over the years and who like genuinely made me cry so I'm going to I'm going to start with this one both these dudes made me cry but I'm going to start with these emails because in my last newsletter I asked people to tell me what they've learned from this podcast you know tell me what some of their favorite episodes were and both Luke Mulva and Vishendra Nadi got back to me. And so I'm going to share what Vishendra had to say, which was, Hey there, this email is a little late, but I hope it gets you in time for episode 100. But I'm not confident it will. In brackets, that's what I get for procrastinating. Don't worry, I procrastinated a whole week, gave, gave us both a run up for this thing. So you made it in time for episode 100. He says, I've loved hearing stories from people with much more varied existence than my own, hearing the risks they take and how, even if shit went sideways, they just kept on going. I know that sounds like a very generic, positive answer, but let me explain a little. I'm someone who never really got into the essay culture scene. Whether it was music, writing, art, or entertainment, my attention was focused on international people or groups and things they would do. Essay music was just people trying hard to be like those artists and failing miserably. And the comedians just sounded too... stale? Whatever it was, I just couldn't bring myself to appreciate my country and the people in it. Call it pessimism or whatever. But yeah. Then some dude called Bob, but also called Darren. Hey, that's me. Asked for a lift to Magic at the Unseen shop. One day, and speaking to him... On the rides to and from fnm started to open my eyes just a little bit to the variety of people you can find in durban and then he put on a comedy show at the bat cave which wasn't as well supported as i wish because fuck, his passion for performance came through in every conversation we had about comedy and i felt that this would just make him drown the negativity in brackets also i thoroughly enjoyed the show but no Later on, the annual comedy festival would start and seeing the talent in Durban alone showed me that I'd missed out on so much. And then the podcast showed me the variety of talented people that we have in the country and that we have people who are just as passionate and talented as those internationals are loved. You and the podcast give South Africans a platform to shine, to share, and to inspire. And that's my favorite part of it. No matter the guest, no matter the topic, just hearing about different lived experiences whether in my own country, my own city, made me adjust my way of thinking. Now, I try my best to support local artists where I can, whether it's buying a local comic book instead of a Marvel one, or that it's bead artists on the side of the road creating beautiful patterns. I try listening to a local artist when I'm driving rather than the same generic top 10 playlist that Spotify suggests. So yeah, I hope that makes sense and whether it gets into the podcast or not. Thank you for keeping it going for over 100 episodes. Kind regards, Vish. Well, bro, thank you so much for that. Like I said, that genuinely touched me when I read it because that's exactly why I do this and why I've done a lot of what I do. Like obviously the stand-up comedy is for me. That's a thing that I do to express myself and my ideas and reconcile with the world, but things like this and things like "Durban is yours and a lot of the writing that I've done over the years has been to try and highlight and showcase other people and other things that I think are cool and that I think might not necessarily get the props that they deserve so that I've managed to have this impact with you is literally everything I've ever wanted you know that's all I that's the goal man that's the fucking goal with all of it so it really warms my heart. It really makes me feel like I'm on the right path. And it really does is just, you know, it gives me, yeah, it gives me the, it gives me the fuel to carry on with this thing, to try and make it, yeah, to episode 1000. Got one more email and then we're going to get into the quotes, into the little snippets, into the look back of the last two and a half years, the last 99 episodes of the Almost Perfect Podcast. But first, here is an email from an ex-guest of this podcast. This is by Luke Mulver. Bob, my boy! While I have found all of the Almost Perfect Podcasts that I have listened to thoroughly enjoyable, I like the qualifier that he has listened to. But yeah, he has found them thoroughly enjoyable, darkly hilarious, and undeniably informative about a pretty wide spectrum of stuff. I would have to say that the biggest inspiration I get from them is you, bruh. Aww. The fact that you're just pursuing what you love, hell or high water, regardless of obstacles, personal or professional. I think that you and I both know that people like us couldn't stop doing what we do, even if we wanted to. We are wired as creatives. It ain't just a calling. It's in our goddamn DNA. Anyone who can quit an art was never really an artist to begin with. I believe this is a running theme with a lot of your guests as well. These aren't just our jobs, these are our passions. Writing, art, music, speechcraft, wit, things we love, things we are. Self depreciation aside, in brackets, I know that game too. I have a great deal of respect for what you do and what you've done over the years. Not just because I know that behind your dry humor is fecund passion, but the fact that you're always trying to pull up others even if it might mean potential missed opportunities for you. Shit, you're still here in Durban with the rest of us gutter guttersnaps. Mad admiration. Sometimes the work may seem thankless, but know that peeps are out here appreciating you. Now that I've finished blowing smoke up your ass, keep it up, homie. It's episode 100 and beyond. Luke. <sighs> thank you. Like, just thank you, bro. You are someone who inspires me. Like your, your constant creativity, your constant output of work, your constant, you create comics in Durban. Like that is, if that isn't ice skating uphill, I don't know what is, but I'm with you, man. Like that is the thing. It's, it is a calling. It is a, it's a sickness almost. It's this thing of like, just being driven by feeling like you have to do a thing and you have to make it work and you have to just, despite whatever happens, despite the lows, because there are a lot of lows, especially with stuff like this, especially when you don't have budgets and you don't have the same kind of networks that other people might have or the same kind of, you know, brand name like or name value or whatever. Like I'm not someone who's on TV or radio or all of that. So this shit can sometimes feel pointless and I can feel like it's not reaching a lot of people, but that doesn't make it any less important. And it doesn't make the stories that are shared here and the conversations that I had and the people who do listen to it and the people who do interact with it any less important. So like, that's something I've definitely learned with this podcast is because with other projects that I've had with ratting and like with Urban is Yours and even with Everything else that I've written for, you know, the big audiences—it's a large number of people reading what I put out there—and this just isn't on the same scale. And in a weird way, that's almost exactly what I want. It's finding, uh, it's finding people who give a fuck and who are willing to take the time to listen and to learn and to implement things into their own lives. Like, that's the whole point of all of this, is to try and provide something for the people who can't help but be creative, who can't help but, despite the fact that they know that a career in music is one of the dumbest things you could ever do, that a career in comedy is just going to mean hanging out with narcissistic assholes for every fucking weeknight for a long period of time. That writing means sitting in front of a computer on your own, being incredibly lonely for days and weeks on end. And still they pursue it. Still they do the thing. Like they get rejected constantly over and over again. And that's who this podcast is for. Yes, it's some of the guests. Yes, it's very much the people who are on the podcast. But I like to think, and we've done that, we've had quite a few people who you know, our listeners of the podcast, supporters of the podcast have been guests because they do have those same qualities as the guests. And I assume that if you listen to something like this, there is that spark within you that feels like, fuck it. I just have to create these things, whatever those things are. Like you just, you have to express yourself and you have to do it in whichever ways are available to you. So much respect to you, Luke. I greatly appreciate this email. And I greatly appreciate your work in general. Go check out the Luke Mulver episode of this podcast. It is episode number 32. So go and check that out. When you've got a bit of time in your hands, you want to learn what it's like to be an independent comic book creator here in South Africa. So with that out of the way, we are going to get into the look back, the the thing that has caused a lot of mental stress for me because I keep I've listened to a lot of episodes of the podcast not as many as I was going to because of the load shedding and the having work and fuck I've got like a leaking pipe and now motherfuckers have to come in early in the morning to break down the wall and fix that shit so that takes time out of my schedule so there were going to be some more episodes I was going to touch on but unfortunately haven't been able to do that this is the almost perfect podcast if everything went perfectly, it wouldn't be that podcast. But we are going to take a look back now. These are interesting stories from a number of different people. I will introduce them before we get into them. And you're gonna hear a great sampling of what we have managed to achieve here together. You, me, and not quite the ninety-nine other people, because there were a couple times I'm not even gonna you know what? I'm not even gonna get into the canon of this fucking podcast, cause it's even worse than Star Wars. It's like There's these little side comics that were canon, but they're not canon anymore. Whatever. Like, just, this is episode 100, and here it comes. So first up, we have Neil Green from episode 3, all the way back in episode 3, but Neil and I go way further back than this podcast. We actually did an episode of this podcast beforehand. It was another one of those situations where I fucked up the recording. But before that... You know, we had a podcast called The Live from the Winston Podcast, caused caused quite a stir from time to time. You can find that on the internet somewhere. Go, go, go. You can just Google and you'll find that. But this is, this is a cool look at, you know, kind of like our generation, although Neil's a little bit older than me, and how we consumed comedy and how we consumed media, because It wasn't as easy as it is now, you know. He tells a story about Eddie Murphy getting unbanned in South Africa and being able to watch that. And he also shares a story about watching comedy at Colin D's, which was a strip club that would actually host comedy as well. Uh, We talk about representation. We talk about stereotypes. uh, We talk about racist audience members. So yeah, this is quite an interesting little chat and you can hear the rest of it on episode three, here comes
1: Neil Green. Stand up comedy, people don't notice. Stand up comedy was not mainstream accepted then, like it was now. Not a oh fuck, dude. Like, that's the weird thing. Like, because I,
0: yeah, like I grew up watching the stuff that was on Mnet Like they had, they would put these specials on, like these one hour specials, like yeah. Chris Rock. They had Ellen DeGeneres. They had, yeah uh, what's his name? Well, I never had Yeah. So, I mean, I assume it would have been slightly different for you, but for me, like Chris Rock's the guy that like I always saw, like I always yeah. like, loved and I was like, fuck, now, like, I, was I wish that. I could do that.
1: I was before that. We had straight audio of Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor at the time. Oh shit. And the first thing that we watched, watched was eddie murphy's raw not the first special which was delirious the second one raw we watched that like as a family and it was the most hilarious as a shit. family yeah for real right? uh, it was like the most hilarious shit to me at the time i guess for white families it's like monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i suppose it's a lot like monty Python. and I uh, my my father was like obsessed with anytime somebody came to visit he'd be like yo have you seen eddie murphy's raw <laughs> And if they hadn't, we would watch that shit. But like, I watched that thing so many times. And um, so like that was the first video. And we got that video because it became unbanned as part of During a part of it, that was banned. That was, part of, it was one of the... Yeah, it was definitely. So when that got unbanned, that was the first time we got to watch stand-up comedy. So by the time, uh, but I still did a lot of the audio. I remember Chris Rock's um, Bring the Pain. Bring the Pain. I had yeah, a CD so of it. I, I never watched that. I had a CD of it i have a dvd now that i bought many years later but i listened to that whole thing so and like i always loved comedy and um uh, i, I used to tell my friend's sister at that time that's what i'm gonna do like you know one day i'm gonna do up comedy but it, there was a big gap with it i didn't think that was real that's the thing because you always <laughs> like even me like i was like
0: i want to do this thing but i could never do that There was no like, real way of doing like, it like how do you get there yeah well, there like, was no real you know, like,
1: avenues oh but there was comedy just happened in dublin but that was like Mark Banks, Colin D, John Flearsmith, Colin D. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was even well, comedy was whitewashed at that no, time. I know, huh?
0: but I'm just because I remember Colin D's as a strip club, but uh, yeah, yeah, but they had comedy there.
1: I'm not saying I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go for the I strippers. Didn't, I
0: didn't even know that fuck that they had comedy there. That's what
1: I went for. Holy <laughs> yes. shit! I swear to you, this sounds weird. I would go watch the comedy and then leave. Like I wasn't interested in seeing the strippers. The strippers were a bit like I don't know. I'm not no, just a stripper yeah. shame. But it was, so, like, people's wives. Like, strippers yeah, that time no, I no,
0: like, kind of knew those strippers and stuff because I was young then, but yeah. they would... My mom worked at the bowling center there, and Colin D. used to play team on bowling. Oh, so, okay. Like, yeah, like, and the weirdest thing is, in the oil wrestling uh, bar, <laughs> the guy who used to do... Like, basically ran the shop at the bowling center, the guy who would drill your balls and stuff like that... For, right. Great, I your <laughs> but that guy—he <laughs>
1: basically was the ref for the oil wrestling. <laughs> oh, he was—he was a man of many talents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, moonlight Fuck. No, but for real, like I can—I can tell you, Colin D jokes now. Like <laughs> I'm telling you, I know almost all Colin D's jokes, but like I to enjoy watching. No idea that he was a comedian. Like, wow. Bruh, I'm telling you, I to sit and watch. Like, it was the most amazing thing to me to see people doing stand up comedy live, and then like twice a year. They would do like proper stand up comedy shows in Durban. But even then, there was like the ICC was around, but they wouldn't have comedy at like, they wouldn't even have comedy at the playoffs, dog. Like, I watched your know, first playoff show I watched was Mark Lotsey, and I walked out. I was so offended. Oh, yeah, because you. Oh, so offended. You hated the stereotypes. And oh, I was anything. enjoying the comedy, but there was a oh. character they used do. Oh, yes. There was a colored lady that's a cashier, and I was like, nah, I'm done. I'm not watching this. I'm out. I uh, love Mark now. So, I, like, Mark is one of my favorite comedians to watch now. But at that time, I was like, nah, I'm not... Because, again, comedy wasn't a space that my people were in. So I was basically sitting in this room full of people that didn't look like me. They were, like, at you. nudging each other in the ribs and going, hey, yo, these colored girls are like that. You know, so, like, I didn't like I didn't like that. But like. do you not... I mean, do you not see that within your own comedy?
0: like when you do when you perform like and you talk about colored things and Absolutely. you perform to white audiences and how, that, but how do you feel about people come again? up to
1: me afterwards and feel comfortable saying the most racist shit shit to me because i was talking about it on stage you now so I, I wear that I, I understand but how do you deal with that like you know like the way i the way i see it if you can come up to me after a show and see something that i did and feel comfortable to be racist around me afterwards, because that happens. Then you're just racist. (laughs) Then that means you are racist to start off with. Like like you didn't come there, saw me do comedy and went, oh, I'm racist now. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've had an epiphany. I've been sitting here and watching this colored guy, and now I realize that I'm racist. So I don't take responsibility for people's racism. I do, however, I have to take, I do have to take responsibility for enabling racist behavior sometimes. And I do have to take responsibility for making it okay socially to talk about racist things because I'm talking about racist things. I I am.
0: Once again, that was Neil Green and you can hear that full episode on episode three. This next clip is from episode seven with Lindy Johnson and it basically explains how she got into stand-up comedy, how her tweets got her into stand-up comedy and also how that stand-up comedy led her to some some tough times or at least just dying on a stage where nobody else dies on. So this is a fun little clip that highlights the experience of what it's like to be a stand-up comedian in South Africa. Here comes Lindy Johnson.
2: This girl messaged me on Twitter. She DM'd me and she's like, yo, I love your tweets. Um, have you heard of this place called Auntie? Because they still do comedy and I saw you do comedy at the competition she was also She's like, I so said do a. If you're interested in doing comedy again, you should come to Armchair. Because I know one of the guys who work there full and they were oh, good cool. friends. And then I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is exactly what I need. And she's like, I'll come pick you up at your house even. You need to do comedy. You need to go on a stage. I was like, okay, cool. I don't know you, but I'll do it. It's fine. <laughs> and now she's my best friend. Who was that? It's Tanika. You don't know okay.
0: her. But Wait, shout out does, to Nika Taste. Does, does she do comedy?
2: No, what? she doesn't. She just loves
0: comedy and she loves seeing people succeed. Oh, we need like some like I love people like that. We've yeah. got to fill them in Durban and they like are the backbone like of our audiences. Yeah,
2: she loves and she understands it. Like yeah. she really understands it well. So yeah, she took me to my first gig and then it went went well. It went well and then the first time I died was at the box in Joburg. You died at the box? Yeah. You see? How? You see? For those listening, you don't understand. The box is like, not the That's, easiest room, oh, it's but it's a warm easy. room. It's, it's so, so warm. And people are so. <laughs> you think, the thing what happened was, um, it was a little people and the power cut out.
0: Uh, okay. And you were also relatively still new
2: to the game? Yeah, it was. So. It was like a few months in. So I died. Was that the
3: same gig I... There with candles, was that the same? Yeah, one? I think so. Probably was I there? I don't know. I don't
2: you were wearing a March Simpson t shirt, oh, so then I was there, <laughs> oh, my
3: sequin one.
2: Yes, very bright t shirt. Yeah, um, you can you guys can see the t shirt through the podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, the whole it's Marge's hair, and the whole hair is blue, but it's and in sequins. Blue sequins. Yeah, the whole t shirt is blue. Sequins.
2: Yeah, so that's the first time I ever died, and it was
0: just it was devastating. It must have been devastating because you go to Joburg. You go to a room that's usually really dark. I
2: heard so much about the box. I heard like, so much. Everyone's everyone like, you're going to love it. It's you're going to kill. <laughs> that's that's going to be your environment. And then I go and I die. And everybody was there. There so, were more comics than audience members. That kind of night. Nice.
0: And did you have any buzz behind you at that point? Yeah, so, I had a little bit. So people came and were like, oh, we're going to watch yeah. her. I have heard
2: about her. We're going to see. I've heard so much about you. Like, I got that before the gig as well. I've heard so much. I was excited to see what you do. And then I died. And then I walked straight out to the couches and I cried. I cried so hard. <laughs> and then I was like, I was uh, on my phone Googling to apply to universities. Like UNISA or anything. <laughs> like,
0: this, it's like, is this not isn't for, for me. me.
2: Yeah, this isn't my
0: life. And <laughs> um, there, there is an old saying, like, don't let the good gigs go to your head and don't let the bad ones go to your heart. Yeah. Uh, like, and I think. That's the key because now you've obviously died and you know had great shows like you know ever yeah since. they
2: balance and out. My thing is you could have fifty bad gigs and just that one great gig you'll
0: always I, chase that. I don't know if you have fifty bad gigs you probably like if they're in a row
1: <laughs> and, like you've got a lot of persistence.
0: I'll yeah, say that. I
2: don't get that's what I admire about people who say they've been doing comedy for six years, five years, and they weren't
0: that good but they still keep going. i like, I wouldn't be able the, to I that. mean, I feel like I'm in that position where it's taken me a lot longer than someone like you, like, but I'm dedicated to it and I'm working at it and I'm trying to learn the craft and like coming at it slightly more. That like
2: kind of passion I admire the most. Cause it's just like, you have to push through so much. Yeah, I'm also. just a bit
0: pigheaded though. Like that's the thing. I'm mm. one of those people that just regardless of what anyone else says or whatever, I'm just going to do the thing I want to do. And yeah. like, Maybe I'll be good at it, maybe I won't, but that's what I want to do. This I is like when really I used the... to skateboard, like I still could barely kickflip, but I did that for half my life. So, Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's
2: dedication. Yeah, it's just,
0: I don't know if dedication or just idiocy, well, a, I'm not sure. It's <laughs> weird, because the things that I'm good at, it's, I get bored with a lot of the time, so oh, okay. like, I guess it's just that thing of being challenged.
2: Maybe I'm just like, I enjoy yourself wanked like that, just... <laughs> okay, all <or> wangs herself
0: <laughs> Well no, you can wank someone else off, like you that can. is, yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we
0: ass that. <laughs> <laughs> uh um so yeah, you died at the box, you've now since have you with that week? Did you go to Kitcheners or well, Puppies, and did you like recover? Yeah,
2: the next night I was at Puppies, and then I got my redemption, and then I was fine. But I would still that, that box will always be with me. It will always be the death that I came with me.
0: Have you gone back there? Have you killed? The, since? Yeah,
2: I have, and it's fine. But I'm still. The box is still that room where I'm like, hmm, this bitch.
0: <laughs> it's weird. Like, I love the box. I love kitcheners. Those are, like, two of my favorite rooms like, Kitcheners in and
2: poppies, I do well. It's fine. But the thing is, when I do well, it's out of my mind. Because then,
0: for me, I'm like, when I do well, that's my job. That's yeah. what I'm
2: supposed to do. I'm exactly. supposed to make people laugh. I'm not
0: going to pat myself on the back for it. <laughs> uh, I, lo- I love you for saying that Because so many people Like come off stage And go Oh I killed And like they've got this Like big like thing About like doing well and it's like No that's the point
2: like, Yeah that's...
0: that's what you're meant To like, be Like it doing. feels good I get it
2: Especially yeah. like afterwards Oh but such I'm, a not, rush. I'm not gonna keep it with me It's not something Like now it's like Oh what What am I gonna do next Here's my next gig But like That death It stays in forever <laughs>
0: Yeah, some deaths definitely linger for a bit longer than they should. And like, I mean, I've had some times where it's just like, I should not be doing this. <laughs> and then, Always. But, but the key is... I've like,
2: never met a comic who is just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. For and really? It's the yeah, like ever.
0: No, comedy's a bitch. The key is, though, to get back on stage as quickly as you possibly can. Like, yeah. If you've died, that's, like, you have to try. That's why just... I'm
2: so glad. Because right after the box, I did The Next Night Poppies. Yeah. So it was fine, but
0: still... And that was Lindy Johnson from episode 7. Up next, we have Miss Lee for Mark from episode 18. And also from being one of my oldest friends. I've got so much love for Lee. It's been wonderful to watch her her journey. Her take so many different paths and experiments and try so many different things. She's an incredibly talented human being. And this is a story about how she got fired from Saltwater Girl back when she used to be a a culture writer, a music journalist. And they asked her to review S Club 7's one album. And it landed up getting her fired. And it landed up getting uh, a lot of hate mail from the Saltwater Girl readership. So this is a really fun short story I hope you enjoy it here comes lee for mark
3: they weren't giving me like i'm gonna say deftones i know you're a you're a hater no uh, matt's a I'm, hater, I used a hater? To, no i used to
0: be a hater but oh, i've yes, grown to i've grown to appreciate deftones I've gone point of
3: the story is they weren't giving me that they're giving me stained yeah. so i'm I, I mainly wrote really scathing reviews um and i actually got fired from Saltwater girl because i wrote a especially scathing review <laughs> of s club seven and, um,
0: I think I remember that, like that was, no, yeah, you were writing for Saltwater Girl when, uh, when we knew each other. So yeah, yes, yeah, yeah.
3: it was, I basically, my review was listing all the people involved in the album and saying, those are all the people that could have stopped us. <laughs> Cause there were so many people involved in the album. Um, and then they got hate mail about me and I'm not sure Saltwater Girl ever, you know, was expecting hate mail.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's a good thing though. It's typically- yeah,
3: Well, they, then they said, we're firing you because you've got too many opinions. Um so then I wrote uh like a farewell article and kudos to them, they published it. But I wrote an article on being opinionated and why I thought at the time in my 24-year-old wisdom that being super opinionated was a very good thing because at least you had the wherewithal to know how you felt about something. I'm not saying my opinions I was were particularly. Say how, do you, how do
0: you feel about that now though? Because I mean, with a bit of age and wisdom, because I mean I definitely if you look at Derbit is yours and the shit we wrote there kind of similar you know yeah. Like, <laughs>
3: yeah I mean you definitely temper your shit with age and kind of I guess realize that you could hurt people or step on toes or offend or whatever also and I that it's for your own ego that. that
0: you do it as well yeah
3: absolutely I had a soapbox and I wanted everyone to know how cool fucking, you are how cool for being able how s- to like yeah be how strong my stuff, opinion yeah. was and rah 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 and I definitely don't think that I go around and do that anymore but if you sit next to me at a you know, dinner party. Oh, you got some scathing opinions. Yes. No,
0: that's one of my favorite things about you is like, we can just sit and like not engage with anyone else like the whole night and just be taking the piss out of everyone and everything that's going on. It's
4: a lot of fun.
3: (laughs) You don't want to change your core. I think that's the thing about aging is like you do. There are so many things that you learn and change, but I, I, maybe I didn't always like it, but I really like my call. And it's, it, you know, cheesy as it sounds, it makes you who you are. It is who you are. And, and we are all individuals. And so I'm glad that that hasn't changed.
0: It's just how you express that core, And like, yeah, I do find like, as you get older, hopefully your ego like takes over less, like, you're, like your twenties are such an ego driven. like So ego driven.
3: Like, I can genuinely genuinely say that I don't care what people think about me now. Like I don't.
0: And that was Lee for Mark from episode 18. This next clip is from my interview with Nas Hussein, who was a good friend to me. We became really good friends after this conversation, especially. And I miss him a lot. He passed away from COVID earlier this year. But I think this... I think this little snippet gives a great representation of the kind of conversations that Nas and I had in general. It goes all over the show. He starts off like a little bit strange talking about reptilian brains and all of that sort of thing before we get into talking about death and faith and the faith that he had in his family, talk about hope and love and sharing and Yeah, Nas was a super philosophical dude and someone who I really love talking to. And there are so many quotable moments just in this little snippet. But you can listen to the full episode of the podcast on episode 19 to get a better feel for who Nas Hussein was. Here it comes.
5: Think about this. There is no uh, guaranteed solution to the human race, right? We no. kill each other, we um, we maim each other. We have uh, there are lots of us, a higher potential than we know that have no empathy. Right? Yeah. Um, they they hang out with you and me, and they they look like you and me, but they're reptiles wearing our skin. Right? <laughs> like, and we've seen them. You've met people like this. I've met people like this. Yeah. I mean, I, you don't actually mean reptiles, but I get you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I call them reptiles because it's reptile brain, yeah. our complex. Right? Yep. Right. It's 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 the part that says survival, 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 survival. Right. The part of us, and you and I have it, and everybody has it. But, but it's to different but degrees. They 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 live it. They live it on a permanent basis. It's like now now if you interact with people like that, you know that they are effectively dangerous not because they even know that they are and that's what makes them so fucking dangerous yeah because they, they don't even think they're dangerous they just think they're normal or special one of the two right they usually think they're exceptional exactly right totally well we're, we're veering into psychopath territory now. well right? that's uh, what i assumed we meant but anyway yeah, no, no, sure I'm, I'm, I'm trying to include these people in the spectrum that aren't just sociopath as well yeah. exactly right sociopath narcissism all the stuff on the spectrum now we interact with those people they're fundamentally dangerous to us what can we do as humans, to interact with them in a way that allows us to save ourselves, um, and I don't mean save ourselves just to like just to survive, not just to claw around eating and uh, fucking and, and sleeping, but to to live our lives with all the things that bring us joy, with fucking you know half ass coffee that we're yeah. drinking right now. And, hey, like, and you know what? Movies. It was still
0: like I didn't enjoy the coffee that much, but it was still more enjoyable than not having a coffee.
5: Precisely, that's why we drank it, right? Like we, why we ordered it in the first place. We wanted we wanted the kick. Um, And we're getting the kick and it's not bad. You're right. I'm being an asshole, (laughs) but Like for us to enjoy our life to live our lives, not just survive. We have to teach one another The most valuable lessons about ourselves. We have to teach each other hope love um, and I'm not saying that those things are Guaranteed solutions to life because I think this is where we veer into like the sort of yogi bliss yeah. movement, bullshit, where people who are actually psychopaths sit around doing yoga all day and then tell you about how it's changing their life for the better. And,
0: and so, so you have people who don't have much going on in their lives, then doing this thing and being like, hey,
5: my life's amazing.
0: It's like, no, your life was amazing without the yoga. Yo. <laughs> like, <laughs> but,
5: but also, also, you know, you breathe enough uh, oxygen slowly enough, your metabolism is functioning at the right <laughs> rate and you feel calmer. Yep. It doesn't mean that the world is now okay. You just feel calmer. You feel better about it. I think it. the people people who start out with a low un- understanding of what's happening in the world, who then breathe a lot like, slower, tend to forget about like, no, 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 there's still little poverty we need to fight and there's still uh, hunger that we need to solve. And, but now, yeah, they become more accepting of the world. Like, exactly y- yeah. but you need to be more um, accepting of the world, but also unaccepting of the bullshit of the world, <laughs> because to truly accept something is it not to acknowledge that it's fucked up as well.? Right? Yeah. So, so I just think that what's important is the narratives we share about the world need to be a mix, right? They need to be a, a nice, and they are a mix. But like I look at our current uh, way of addressing the world, and it's changing. So I speak about it now, almost post tense But this this current way is almost like this jokingly suicidal. Right? Yes. Like so, we have this thing. Uh, and well, that them, is because we're staring at a precipice. Like you know, like sure. But 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 like, why does a precipice have to be um, the point at which we um, see? Precipice should be the point at which we leap, and instead we make it the point at which we fall. Right. And and for me, well, it's, some
0: people leap and they exactly. you know go on to live great lives a lot of the time. And, yeah.
5: and what I'm saying is we need to tell people more often about leaping. Yeah. Right? Like we have to tell people more often about like there's a card in the tarot deck called the fool. Right? And the fool, I remember the image in my, the deck that I have at home. The image is a dude wandering on a cliffside looking up at a flower that he's holding in his hand and he's so distracted by the flower he's walking off the cliff. Yeah. Right? And the, the idea of the fool is to say, to be a fool. Not to laugh at the fool but to be a fool. To be somebody who be willing to continuously gets distracted by the beauty of things to learn a lesson when they fall they are like whoa holy fuck i fell right because it brings them into an awareness that makes them understand that like maybe maybe there are uh, there is some beauty in the flower that i was staring at when i fell off the cliff um and how do i bring the beauty with me how do i bring the flower with me on my descent into the darkness um now that's how i tend to try and approach things i guess so i believe very very fucking hardcore serious in the thread of skynet I want you to understand. Like I'm, I'm worried about it. I think we got to get ready. I think I think um, we're
0: on the same like level here. Of we both have this existential dread about the future, but also have like this hope that maybe we can like you know survive it and not make that happen. It's and, the like,
5: only solution. There is no other solution to to staring death in the face. Than than hope. to say, hey, death. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna see what that's about. Which is why we made up as humans. The, why we or hope does last (laughs) like heaven and hell right we said either you you fall i thought god came up with that (laughs) (laughs) either you fall into it by accident right hell right either you go like i'm not gonna die i'm not gonna die i'm not gonna die or i i don't care i don't care i don't care and then you die and it's horrible right because you just didn't know it was coming so you you didn't prepare for it that's what the idea is or you prepared for it right like as in you acknowledge it was coming and you said i'm preparing for this i know it's coming It will happen one day, I don't know what day, I don't know what time, I don't know what moment, I don't know how, and then it happens. And I think you go in.
0: So what you're saying is we shouldn't worry about
5: Skynet. (laughs) I'm saying we should worry about Skynet, but we should prepare for Skynet, not worry so much that we don't prepare. Oh no, you see, I'm I'm
0: like, you see, I took, ah, you see, I'm putting my own biases here because that's (laughs) a thing. like, no, because I was just thinking like, when you're talking about heaven and hell there, it's like, yeah, but you're not really (laughs) going to either. Like you're preparing for- But you're leaving behind heaven and hell when you die you leave behind the heaven and hell for other people you, yeah you talk about utopia. but the thing is but the thing is though like if you don't believe in heaven and hell then you're fine like that's the yeah. thing like only you're way better like if, only
5: off. if you take the basic lame ass judeo-christian fucking version of those things And, yeah. I'm, and not even judeo because there's no hell in, in judaism but um sort of yeah there's like there's, like there's lucifer there's no, like yeah 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 yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah, it's, there's different, there's, right? it's 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 yeah. less, um harsh God it's, God less it's less.
0: It's fire, less like fire and brimstone. Like, isn't it just non-existent? It's non-existent. Yes. right? it's non-existent, which I think
5: is great. Which is also the end, which, which is also
0: the end result of the Christian book, by the way. Yeah. Like, people don't get that. They're like, you don't like, you go to hell for like, well, earth becomes hell right. for a thousand years, and then it's all gone.
5: God destroys it all. Yeah. Anyway, so, so, this but, but is, point, I love my mythology. Yeah, so do I. Right? I love this mythology. Yeah. It's, 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 there's a reason we came up with these stories and there's a reason we tell these stories. And if we can extract the real value from the story, it's not about whether you're literally going there or not. Yeah. It's about like, what is the thing that is in these that is valuable to us as human beings now while we walk around on the earth and we do live. I'm not worried about whether I'm going to heaven or hell. No. Like I, I, th- th- Those are abstract concepts that God will have to deal with. If it's a real thing, yeah, right? If it's a real thing, I, I joked my mom the other day, right? Because I have a tattoo. My mom is not super religious, but every now and then she frets. So yeah. she looked, she was like, kind of like, you didn't even ask me kind of thing, right? I had a tattoo for years, but whatever. We had this discussion. And I said, Dude, you know the thing you were worried about is that I will not get into heaven. I said, but also remember that on the day of judgment, there's an intercession where you you speak to God (laughs) for me. I was like, you're not relying on your ability to intercede for me and my brother's ability, my father's ability and my sister's ability. Please, all of you will pull this off. I'll be fine. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I wasn't just being a cunt. Right. I wasn't just putting faith in them. I was putting faith in them. Right. Because I was saying your humanity matters to me. I believe in you. I love you. You love me. I know this will work out. Don't worry. Like, let's pull this off together. That's what we have to do for one another. Like, let's say that, let's pretend for a second there is a heaven and a hell. Those people are going to pull that off just fine. Trust me, I fucking know them well enough.
0: And that was Nas Hussein from episode 19. So this next clip is from episode 38 with Charles Bliknot. We did it in his hotel room at the Durban International Film Festival, literally just before he had to catch a flight back to Joburg. It's a conversation that I don't think I was entirely prepared for. I should have been a bit more prepared for it. But Shaw was such a gracious guest and gave so openly. Like this little snippet you're going to hear, we talk about, well, he talks about the intersectionality between the gay and black struggles, especially during apartheid. Uh, we talk about basically stories of true rebellion. Like he mentions his one friend who was a drag queen who got into a confrontation with the Nazi and how that was on the front page of the papers. He talks about the artist's role in resistance. Uh, we talk about the corporatization of pride and that all leads into how pop culture comes from counterculture and how that cycle is kind of an endless one. So here comes notes. Do you think your growing up queer made you Like, obviously, more likely to, like, you know, side on the black side of things when it came to, you know, apartheid. Absolutely.
6: There's no doubt that my queerness led me into a a political space. I mean, I met at at, at an early age in 1990, um, Simon Corley, at the first uh, Joba Pride March organized by Corley and Bev and Evan Cameron. And as AIDS hit, you know, when you grow up uh, and and sex is illegal, that that's beautiful fertile ground for disease to spread and viruses to grow and self uh, self hatred and 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 body shaming and all of the things attached to sex that are then you, you can't even talk about them. So the epidemic hit us hard. And Simon was uh, who himself um, passed away because of the virus. Um, Simon was doing men's sexual health projects uh, in Soweto across the East Rand, um, and I started documenting these on the TV show, and I started doing a series called Breaking the Silence, where it was still so stigmatized, and it was the queer men who were doing something about it and mobilizing and being visible about it.
0: So that's always just, I mean, but we look at history, it's always kind of been that way that if you are oppressed, like you have, well, yeah, you obviously have to fight back.
6: So it's the intersectionalities. I mean, Simon Simon said it in that famous speech at the, before the start of the first pride, that I, I am black and I am gay. And please, uh, uh, those in the ANC want me to say I'm black first. And those here in the movement of queers want to say I'm gay first, but I will never be either first. i am I'm all those things. And this is, a key uh, moment in our intersectionality studies, where we have to accept that that there are multiple oppressions heaped upon Black life. Um, and and uh, Simon was a very very big influence, and later Stephen Cohen would be. I was a terrible rebel, and I took a lot of drugs and. One of the people that really helped me out of that was the performance artist, Stephen Cohen. I would go with him, um, and help him with his work. I would, I've actually encouraged him to, 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 to drag for the first time. Um, I remember one day I took him to Fort Klapperkorp in Pretoria where we, the, the, there was supposed to be an art exhibition there, but the RV Beer claimed the space for a centenary celebration of Paul Kruger's birth or death or something. And we literally marched all the way up to these guys with swastikas on their arm. This monster drag queen and this junky white faggot, you know, I mean, this this was not for for sissies. I did tell the drag queen that this thing is going to be on the front page of the Sunday Times, and it was him confronting Amazing. this face to face with a the Nazi. Um, it, these were real contestations, you know, shopping malls where bombs were going off, um, the, the the violence was everywhere, and 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 the the struggle for for the art that resisted all of these oppressions was a real thing and a real endangering thing. Those artists made difficult work.
0: And nowadays we're facing a different problem in that it's those artists and that art has become commercialized, it's become marketable, it's become like, you know, what big brands do essentially. And do you, how do you feel about that? You know, about queer culture actually coming into like pride in the last month? was just this massive massive thing that every brand was involved in but it feels just ingenuous and it feels like it's been co-opted
6: mm. I sat with Simon um, in the committee meetings of glow who organized that that march and watched the white men bankers middle class white men um, slowly hijack pride um, they said it was for reasons of safety that they took it uh, further into the northern suburbs and um, which took it away from its historical site I've just actually Done a podcast for a French project on the importance of Hillborough and the Skyline Bar, where we met and organised and met partners uh, uh, interracially. The the march was co-opted. It became it got a VIP party, which meant that the poorest of the poor, the people who really mattered, uh, had to take further further money that they were already spending more money on transport because it had been moved into the northern suburbs. Um, and then it became this massive apartheid where uh, white people would go to the VIP party and black people would bribe um, on the lawns of Zuleik the where, where they congregate, where we congregated. I never attended any of those uh, marches in the north. Um, and what happens when things become too commercialised? Everything is entropic. Um, uh, the, the rape and murder of lesbians meant that the One in Nine campaign, who had fought so hard around Quazi, the, the woman we yeah. called Quazi Fizeka who had been uh, allegedly raped by the, by the former President Zuma, um, they demanded that the march not just celebrate, but also acknowledge the murder and rape of lesbians. And when the march wasn't willing to put it on the agenda in any meaningful way, they lay down in the road uh, and stopped the march. The result was some very, very angry lesbians who almost drove over them and they got beaten and, by, by their own people. And, and that was the end of Joburg Pride, the oldest pride march on the continent. But what happened next was uh, Quisil Omsum, Bandasayo and uh, Siguitlani Pamodi and a group of young queers began Joburg People's Pride and they restored it to its original roots um, in Hilbra and put lesbians first. But before that bread, if we can't eat, we can't fuck.
0: <laughs> yeah, amen. Mm. So, yeah, cu- culture becomes counterculture, becomes culture, mm. becomes counterculture. I mean, you've probably seen that a million times. One thing I do want to ask, though, is... how
6: all, all all popular... All pop, and I dare you to find examples that defy this. There might be some. All pop begins as counterculture, as opposite to the culture that is the mainstream culture. It's always a defiant thing. Uh, quite, or might it might have become the pop of the liberation, but it was an underground, hillbrow form coming out of razzmatazz, coming out of uh, townships. It was not something that was mainstreamed. It's only when when the capital markets um, sees that, oh look, there's the pink Rand, and oh look, there's look, look at Hollywood now. It's yeah. a black, uh, a black endeavour where now uh, these capitalists are seeing how much money they can make out of black life. Um, yes, this is how culture operates. This is how pop culture forms and and the bubble pops and a new one starts.
0: If you want to hear more from Charles Blithnote, check out episode thirty-eight. This next clip is from episode 49 with Luisa Medinga and I was asking him about his philosophy of nobody cares, work harder, which he always says in his Instagram stories. And he explained what he meant by that. I'm not going to get into it here. He's going to tell you in just a second. We also discuss what making it means. And he openly shares a lot of his insecurities because he's someone who has risen very quickly and he's worried about his ability versus you know, the situation that he's in. So he talks very openly about that. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from Luiso Medinga. I'm a
7: very positive person.
0: You are, you can be, especially online. One of the things you're always saying is nobody cares, work harder. Does that not feel like a way to get exploited?
7: I think the word harder just is also just- Misinterpreted. Misinterpreted because sometimes it's about learning how not to be screwed over. And people aren't work people aren't willing to work on other on other parts of their careers you know so people go oh i don't get enough opportunities in this so i'm not saying work just work hard as in like write more and more and more jokes i'll I go okay maybe you should work harder on your image or maybe you need to work harder on creating spaces for yourself okay. maybe there's mo- there's so many ways to work Harder. harder. But people just think it means grind harder, yeah. work later, and then it's like, no. And that's not healthy. That's <laughs> not healthy because then you, it's, it's repeating the same thing over and over to get the same results. So work harder is sometimes you've got to be more than one person for a part in your career. Yeah, You know, so just do that because, because no, it's weird. Once you start doing certain things for yourself, somebody comes, somebody arrives
0: and says, can I do this for you?
7: Can I do this for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: So you're in that position now.
7: I'm having more people approach me now at this point and saying, let me be your person in this and that or whatever, let's work together in this and that.
0: Is that so, gratifying? Does that feel like, is that like a thing where you feel a bit more like you've made it?
7: Uh, made it is such a weird concept. I, mean, I think made it for me is the opportunity to do more work. And and when people want to do work with you, that's a great sign for me. So, uh, so if, uh, when a photographer goes, Yo, we need to do a shoot together of something. That for me is like, Oh, we get to create something else. It's not, Oh, we we'll get to be glamorous. Yeah. I go, Oh, we we'll get to be creative. I hope we can do something that creates a new piece of art or whatever, and we put that out. So, so because it's comedy and performance is a lifelong thing. So there's no need to think that you've made it because also you can. If Brad Pitt doesn't work for the next 20 years, Brad Pitt is done. It's not like, we're not sitting there 20 years going, Red Pit's doing well, huh? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. It's like, he still has to put out fucking work. Well, of course, so but to- it's the opportunity to work that's important. So you never,
0: you don't see like a point in your career where you might just feel like, cool, I'm done, I've done enough now. Do you feel like you're going to oh, care? Because no. I've, I've talked to some people and they're like, yeah, you know, like, I've already got so much in me and then I'm like, done with this thing whereas I'm like I can see myself on stage when I'm 80 you
7: know? yeah like, uh, me too
0: I feel like that's when I'm gonna be like good yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh,
7: like I think that's the thing when people like young especially the younger guys which I mean, like, it's, it's, it's just not knowing what the industry is and like it won't be long before they realize and how long it takes to, it takes to do anything. World, right? So I've been doing it for seven and a half years now. Shut, dude! Your
0: career is great for seven and a half yeah,
7: years. Yeah, in. no, it's, it's moved fast. Fuck. I won't lie. I yeah. Thought,
0: yeah, I thought you were like ten or so years. So that's in. where my
7: anxiety comes from because I know, and you and I know, where I am in my career. Yeah. Where? It's pretty far. On, along on compared compared to paper, your it looks it, it is far along, but in terms of the craft, I know where I am. And I am 5 and I'm being generous when I say I am 5% of the comic I wish to be one day. 5%? Yeah, bruh. I I can poke holes in everything. Wow. I would say,
0: like, I'm 20% of the comic I'd like to be, and I'm a shit comic. So, like, I don't know, like,
7: 5% is underselling yourself. you know, man. I just love, I watch someone, I watch, when I watch um, Stuart Lee's, God's Comedy. To me, yeah. me, He's though. a god, bruh. Like, what that guy does.
0: It's is, insane. It's unreal, dude. Oh. Like, I, I'm so glad you brought him up because that it's... dude I can watch forever and just go, How? I, how are you doing he this? He is so like, good, I don't laugh.
1: Like, because you're an
7: awe. I'm just in awe. I'm literally just watching and' just like, I'm enjoying this so immensely, but laughter just is not enough.
0: And he likes dividing <laughs> the crowd. Like Yes.
7: is like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Uh, it's, so I go. I get you. That's where comedy can be. Where am I? Uh, I don't know any of that. I mean, so, so so far. And and there are moments where like I'll have like one joke in an hour where I go, I wish I was I wish I was that joke for an hour. You know, know what I mean? I don't know how you
0: feel there. So man.
7: until I can be so in an hour, I am a 30-second joke. So I am a five percent of a comic I want to be. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I get you. you well done, you did the maths on
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So How? yeah,
7: so that's so the anxiety comes from that is to get to get attention at a point where you're like Don't feel like you're good enough. I don't feel um, good enough for that attention. But I have to also go the world is huge, no one knows you, keep yeah. working. <laughs> it's also,
0: there's a lot more people who aren't on your level, who are, who do think they are, and are pushing for it, and get those opportunities because they think they are. Yeah. Like, I feel like the Emperor's New Clothes perfectly describes the entertainment industry a lot of the time. Yes. You know, like, it's more about, like, the perception, like, people can be naked, and everyone's I'm not saying anything. Yeah. Like, you know, like, always are walking the streets, and everyone's like, yeah.
7: Yeah, yeah. So, it, there's a lot of that, especially with social, social media allows you to get the fame, and... Yeah. People
0: never even have to see you do comedy and they can think you're a great comedian. Yes. Yeah.
7: And I've watched, peop- I've watched people get opportunities they're not ready for and I feel sorry for them because I go, you obviously have talent, you just don't, you're just, you're pulled, you also feel compelled to be, pu- to- to be in certain spaces because the industry tells you to be there. Where it's like, if, if you just took your time to learn your craft. You could be really great because you're great at getting the attention. So if you if you work on the craft, by the time you you're ready to give people who are willing to give you that attention, you can retain and maintain a really great career. And they could be your audience. And for they life. can be your audience for life. Whereas but people now see you
0: online and they're like, ah, oh, it's funny. And they and love they you and you. they
7: come watch you and it's like, oh, I can't do this again. It was nice seeing them live, but I, would I come again? No. It's it's a, it's unfortunate because we forget that these are lifelong pursuits yeah. lifelong uh, and so in 10,000
0: hours 10 minutes at a time <laughs> do you difficult. know what I mean? it's
7: pretty fucking difficult so yeah man it's just uh, it's it's I, I don't i don't judge them too hard now i did before <laughs> i don't judge them too hard now because i understand the pressure of it
0: once again that was luisa madinga from episode 49 and up next is Ebenezer Dibakwane. Now, this was episode 53. And this was a very, very, very real chat. Uh, in general, we spoke about a lot, but this snippet that I have here, I think it's one of the longest snippets that I have today. It's, yeah, it's a good showcase of a lot of what we talk about on this podcast because we talk about religion, we talk about losing your faith, we talk about stand-up comedy, we talk about Ebenezer's relationship with his family, and we talk about him living on the streets, about him being homeless and staying on people's couches whilst he was performing comedy, how he won the Comics Choice Award whilst he didn't have a place to stay, whilst he didn't have a home, whilst he was you know playing gigs dirty and grubby and going home with girls as a way to make sure he had a place to stay so we chat about that right now we chat about quite a lot on this podcast i highly recommend you go and check it out it is episode 53 but here comes ebenezer dibuquane
8: this is the problem this is the problem for youth comedy this is my issue my issue is-, is that you have to have a brand that's my issue
0: same and And I'm talking I'm not talking
8: about as your know, a brand of comedy or a style or I'm talking about as in you a you person. have to market it. You have to fucking and, and I'm like you know how that used to look like bro? I used to have like a fucking name. More comedy. than those. It was crazy weird. It was like this fucking Yeah, I, I
9: remember yeah, more dreadlock to kind yeah, of
8: love. broken pieces I've got a few now. It's like messed up. It was yeah. like messed up, my beard's more like ragged generally. And I should just wear Crunch. You know, I used to joke about it a lot. I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're thinking. Like, uh, didn't I pass this guy at the road? I'm like, yes, yes, you didn't. Thank you for the five rounds. Appreciate it. Preach. Preach. And I say, and I talk about how broke I am. And then and I'll be like, you know, ever been so broke between you know, when shopping in the bread. Like, <laughs> just like looking past just, just like, just, you know, one day. Like, That's us That's Esco Sans, You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And, then, and then, and I'll be like, what I hate to coming off of the stage is like a lot of white girls, especially. It's kind of like, wow, if yeah, I, I love really it, Dirty Grunchy look, what it? Like, poverty, bitch. I'm poor. This is not a choice, all right? <laughs> it's not fashionable. But the thing about it then, as I spoke about it, then, to be rated, but the, there was a physical story I was telling. What my dream was, and I managed, my dream was to make it. And I thought, no, no, I didn't make it, but I mean, Ref, in reference to where you were, in reference to where other comics were, and in the f- by the fact that uh, I got my comics choice, yeah. I was always one of the proudest things that I got my comics choice award while, like, I just came off the streets. I was so basically all the work that I did, dirty and not looking a certain way, all of that. I did on the streets, looking the way I do, and that's what I, what my message was at the time: Like you can make it anyway. And then the world told me like, nah.
0: You, actually,
8: gotta, you, you, gotta, you gotta look the part you gotta look the part you gotta so what do you mean by makes on, people feel uncomfortable what do you mean by on the streets you were like I literally I was on the streets and then I'd be banking like that slept at a friend of mine some promo comedian I slept at his place for a while I slept at like again I slept everybody me but I also slept on the streets sometimes how did that happen what happened there Like I quit school and my parents are like uh, okay buddy alright big man and and I was, like, stubborn, so I was like, I'm going to make it on my own. I'm going to make it. Fuck, dude. And,
0: I mean, you're, you're, you're making it now.
8: Still <laughs> but, but surely, yeah. But what?
0: Like, fuck, dude. I, I genuinely can't imagine what that's like. I mean, I've, I've slept outside, like, twice in my life when I ran away from, like, home, like, from my mom and stuff. Like, and that's, you know, when I was young and also it was literally under the building that we <laughs> lived in, so it wasn't, like, a real experience, like, and even that was terrifying. So, yeah. how
8: do you do that? Um, if you were like me, who I just lost my religion. So, okay. I was an evangelist, remember? Yeah, yeah. And then everything crumbled <laughs> down. I literally masturbated for the first time I was 19. Holy shit. Um, that, wow, that, you must have shot so much time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was <laughs> like it a mess. mess. It must have been a fucking It was a mess. mess. <laughs> bro, like, I couldn't, could not I fell, 19 I fell, I yeah, fell, my dick, no, bro, it, it, project, it was projected, what is it, what, what is it, like, yeah, I was thrusted, through the air, Did you should lose I'm weight, Yeah, like, bro, <laughs> <laughs> no! you must have lost like two kgs, like, hey, bro, Yeah, right, man, it was crazy, and my balls, I, I thought my balls were bigger than they actually were, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, yeah, but yeah, and then, Like, you know, like, there's a lot of things that I I was disillusioned about and I was heartbroken. And then I went the complete opposite way. Like, instead of, like, learning what is right and wrong for myself then, I said, no, fuck it then. I'll, fuck it. Start having, like, a bunch of sex, you know what I mean? Which is wrong. Like, drinking... Every everything all the time. What's not wrong? I was like, fuck school. No, these are moral issues. No, no, not wrong. I'm just saying, like as and in societal. What what I thought was wrong. You went. So to- I I went and I went and I did them in excess because yeah. I'm like, this is not. I only thought that I was wrong because of God. And if it's not, then fuck it. So then I went in goodness. excess exactly, and I drank. And I did all, everything, to that everything, everything. I just quit school. i like, fuck school. Why the fuck am I still in school? The only reason I even wanted to have what a was degree. For high school or university. university? Yeah, the only reason I wanted to have a degree was because I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be responsible in that construct. I'm probably not going to have a fucking family. Yeah, I'm not. So, fuck it. I might not adopted it, but that's about it. You know, we might have talked that way, Yeah, I know that. Morally, you know, you heard about antinatalism. Uh, yeah, yeah been on that train since
0: i was quite young like
8: that makes so much sense yeah
0: yeah there's so many kids in this world like
8: who need a home and like bringing another kid into the world is morally wrong that is wrong yeah but i might do it anyway <laughs> to be honest <laughs> by, by be accident honest. or <laughs> i don't know <laughs> man you... i just think it's like a narcissistic uh oh you want your you want instinct. your you want your seat to pass on so so you're landed you're on the streets and
0: like How could school were you not feeling like when you had to sleep on the streets, like, like,
8: what the fuck am I doing? Like, I never, I never thought about the fuck, I only thought about the fuck am I doing if I'd only made, like, 300, and I drank it all. That's, and I'm, okay. I could have probably paid for, it, you know, a small place, a backpacker for, like, 150 something. So were you paying, so, sleeping at people's houses, and then you know, also, like, when you got paid decently, you would like, you know, yeah. I was just, or, but or just I those, always, no, I never, and. Hardly ever uh, paid for a place to sleep, but always, like, beers. And so you can share them with people, or so that you can also <laughs> drink? Bit of both. Bit of both, yeah. So like, you know, what I'm, dad, I'm coming through the tough case. We have a tough, a tough pack. <laughs> so case. that's your end, or not? <laughs> but then we drink, and I'm fucked up. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> it, you know what I mean? And then you take a shower. Because I have to leave in the morning like at 8, because they're going to... You know, and they're, they're going they get to work. At and like, you here. just roam around. And those are my best comedic days, because all I, all I could do to fight this insanity while I'm at the park was right. So you're literally, like, waiting for people to come back from work. And then you get on stage, and my thing was like, mmm, guys, I'm, 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 I'm actually homeless, today. Because
0: that's the thing. People used to crack jokes about it to me, and, like, I was just like, that's fucking me. Like, you know, like, you know, like, they, they, they would say, like, everything is a homeless, blah, 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 And I'd be like, fucking
8: dickheads. I was, actually. And I would even say to like honey like two ladies like on stage. Right, kill, kill. Like because this is not a joke. You know what I mean? Like anyway, then carry on, carry on, carry on. Kill, 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 make them forget about it. Go sit at the bar. and like, this closing joke was like, um, women shouldn't care about like I mean men sh- men men shouldn't have fucking any right to uh uh, uh they've not they should haven't done a job in a long time, but men should have no say in how women uh uh what you call it? Expresses herself sexually, that's disgusting that's fucking weird bro like dude, mind your own dick like ladies I'm tired and I don't wanna sound like one of those mansplainers or someone who's like you know like a full ally, I'm just saying personally and I apologize if it comes across like that but personally if I was a woman I would have all the sex I wanted. Out of all the sex yo dude, I'll go on a sex tour start off in like, let stop go down to Cape Town, Kuruman for a while finish off in Venda, you know what I'm saying and i finish off on a bank on a big bang or something like used to say and hmm. then hey, alter it so hard to
0: remember yeah, yeah,
8: I'm just saying, I used to finish up on the big bang I saw it with like, a, like you of know, the vendor stereotype. yeah. yeah. And then, oh, okay I'd be like, yo man, I'll have sex, I'll suck everybody's dick just to prove a point, I'll suck everybody's dick and post videos about it I'll suck the dick anywhere in an airplane in fact, yo, ladies if you wanna go to the toilet now and suck someone's dick go, go, dude it's your business Okay, this is My name is Ebenezer Diwakoni and I'll be waiting in the toilet. Right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Whatever. Does it um, ever work? Never. It <laughs> never worked. Not that I like, blowjob. Someone, <laughs> someone will be like, I'll be on the way to the toilet to go pee. I was joking, obviously. I'm going to the toilet. Like, oh, so uh, I, was, I guess I'll see you in like three minutes. And I'm like, <laughs> are you serious? Because, no? <laughs> All right. <laughs> but then you am just saying, like, you know, and then they'd come to me afterwards at the bar and I'd be serious about it was the joke and i like, oh, that's what I do. He's like, no, I plan with you and make a night. Maybe I was going to try to hit up my brother. Always, you know, you never know how a night ends. But, I mean, you just sat down next to me and have a conversation. You might find me attractive enough to leave it. Sometimes it worked. Fuck, dude, that's so the was Random ladies gave me bedding. Sometimes out of like two, three month relationship where I a place to sleep with some of these ladies. Girl, um, you know like some woke
0: like woman are just going to hear that and just go fuck this motherfucker a woman for a place to stay like yeah yeah, yeah that is
8: what happened though i'm being honest about what happened you know and uh but some of those relationships were real you know what i mean it's just but it was, that was that's what it was it was like for me it was in my mind as a transaction and she found me attractive and I'd say it straight, I wouldn't, it's not like a You provided a value. <laughs> hmm? You provided value. You yeah, yeah, yeah. i like, you you love. Good-looking dude, like, you know, things seem... Thank you. Thank you for
0: Like, you know, not a, not a bad thing for a woman.
8: So, I, you know, that's what I was hoping, you know. And yeah, so <laughs> like, a lot of that shit, like, happens, and then you come and you start be, being more comfortable when you think about things as you can't. Like, for instance, I can't walk more than two kilometers anymore. Anymore? Yes, back then, I used to walk from... You know where kitchen is, is in reference to yes. here? Can you see? Oh, so Marvel fuck, is over there. Well, that's like nearly twenty k. No, no, I'd say about seven, eight, ten.
9: Okay, i my reference in Joburg's
0: fuck then.
8: Yeah, because Marvel Cause is. I like know right where Marvel
0: there. is. I know where Parktown is. I know yes, where, yeah, so so yeah.
8: like, it's, yeah, it's not that far, but I mean, it's like ten k's, nine k's, I'd say maybe even seven. See, we used to do that a lot in Devon, walking home from like the job, but that was more just, you know, because we had spent all our money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but for me, it was like every day. Because I had nothing else to do except comedy. Um, so every day, it was, it was, uh, every so, day, I'd wake up from whoever was housing me the day before, and then wake up because they have to leave, right? They want
0: sounds like being on tour, but like, just without the... Like you're, like, yeah, the care, you're being on tour in your own hometown, like essentially. If you want to check out more of that episode of the podcast with Ebenezer de Bequane, go check out episode 53. This next clip is from episode 61 with Push Push, aka Nikki St. Bruce. And in it, we discuss basically how embarrassed she is, and even me of my old self, but how embarrassed she was of a lot of the stuff that she did when she was younger and how getting into sex work actually helped to radicalize her a lot more and these days she is a much more self-aware person and someone who is super political so you'll hear about the origin of all of that right here with Nikki St. Bruce. When the fuck did you get so
10: political? When I became a sex worker and had to deal with the oppression that comes from that. I was dumb before. I was just stupid. I was so fucking dumb and I didn't know anything, and I didn't have the ability – or no, I had the ability, but I wasn't using critical thought. I was just taking what I heard and running with it because I was comfortable. It made me feel comfortable. It's not nice to feel like this. It's not nice to um, – it's yeah, not nice it. to hate everybody. It's, I don't like it. I miss being stupid, but I know that I can now never go back there.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, I think that was stuff that – I mean, you, you literally used to get criticized for it. Like, I know at one stage you had corners and stuff, and you did a – a photo shoots and that and so people called you out back in the day pretty hectically for for your privilege, for you know, your whiteness essentially and your lack of understanding of the world around you. And it's been wonderful to actually watch you grow into this person who's almost more political than the people who called you out back in the day. So
10: <laughs> you know what Bob, I just I'm like ashamed. I'm ashamed of I'm ashamed of the way I used to think and I'm ashamed of the person that I who I used to be and I'm ashamed that I was ever that I ever had the hubris to, even in the first place, not not question my reality and other people's realities and how, you know, all the things that my privilege afforded me that I never thought about. It just, it makes me cringe. I it I want to die sometimes. But then I think, okay, well, the only way I can take myself out of that hole is just by filling it with all the good things where I just have to fight and fight and fight until I'm in a place where... Not not that I can fight to a place where I'm never not embarrassed of 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 how I used to be, but I think that one day maybe there will be a time where I can say okay i've I've actually I've, I think I've worked hard enough and I think I'm ready to forgive the the girl that I used to be
8: i I
0: fully like understand that just as someone who's obviously still misogynistic because. I'm a man living in a patriarchal society. We all have
10: deeply (laughs) internalized misogyny. Even me sometimes. I'm like, I'll say something and then I'll be like, did I really just fucking say that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But the thing is, I just look back at my past. I look back at my 20s and I cringe and I just want to like, I just want to punch that guy so fucking badly. And I'm surprised. I can't believe I never
10: get punched. I can't believe I didn't get punched.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, but that's the thing, at least, you know, that That is kind of the thing I think that happens is as you get older, you start looking at yourself and you start seeing just how terrible you have been and you get embarrassed and you don't want to be that person anymore. And so, so well, maybe some people, I think, veer more into it. You know, they're like, <laughs> they make it a source of their pride because they want to be different to everyone else. And they don't want to admit that they're hurting people and they don't want to feel that way or whatever. But In general, I think, like, as you get a little bit older and you start looking at your actions and your place in the world and just how terrible you've been, you want to make amends for it. You want to be different. You want to be a better person than, you know, when you were in your 20s. But it does, I don't know, like, do you ever, like, yeah, like, are there ever some things that you're just like, I don't know if I can ever make up for that? You don't have to say what, but like.
10: Oh, there's probably loads of things. I don't want to think about them individually right now because I'm <laughs> probably becoming consolable. I'm very PMSY here. Sorry. But there's definitely things. There's, 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 okay, it's not so much things as arguments that I was involved in where I was speaking from a place of absolutely no knowledge. And what what it's done to me is now I just will never, ever even try to have a conversation with somebody about something that I don't know. I just it's impossible for me to to do now because I've embarrassed myself so much in the past. by just. I mean, obviously, there's obviously something wrong with um, 20s Nikki, where she just loved the sound of her own voice. Like, (laughs) you know, just had to had to always get into the Facebook arguments. Why? Why? Who knows? Because no one even fucking cares.
0: Because you need the attention. Because you're insecure inside. Same as all of us.
10: <laughs> but now I'm like, please, no, miss me the whole time with all of that. Like I just, I I'll never ever try and speak on something that I don't know about. And if I'm ever trying to speak to someone who's doing, who's doing that, you know, I try and have a chat with them rather than tearing them down. And that's that that conclusion I came to after watching a video it was actually a ted talk and i'm ashamed to say that a ted talk um you know changed my perspective or gave me a paradigm shift but it was the daughter of that westboro baptist church
0: oh yes uh she's great though i I haven't seen her ted talks but i've she's been on various different things and like yeah i appreciate what she's doing
10: that's how that's how she got woken up i'm sorry to say woken up but that's how she got you know that's how she woke up one day and went whoa where the fuck am i and Yeah, uh, because a man on the internet very nicely tried to not call her a bitch and a cunt and a stupid dumb hoe. He actually, like, sent her things and, um, you know, little readings that she could do or, like, papers that she could read, other other perspectives that she could, you know, mull over in her spare time when she wasn't picketing outside dead soldiers' uh, funerals. And she was obviously bored enough of her situation or over it enough that she read them. And she went, whoa, actually, whoa, 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 whoa. Am I, am I in the right place right now? And it must have been insanely hard for her because that was her, her whole family. And that's the yeah. only people she ever knew. And she got out of that. So if she can get out of that, then we can actually, we can help internet racists not be internet racists. I'm sure of it.
0: Yeah, but like you just said, the way she was brought to into the fold, since <laughs> he a Christian term, uh, was by someone being nice to her, and the things that we do online—I and I say we, and I mean me—and I do mean a lot of the people listening to this—is pile in on people and be shitty to them. And, and
10: look, what I'm not say, what I'm not advocating yep. for, is being nice to online racists. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But of if course. someone's really, actually stupid, then I will. I'm then I'm going to try at least to engage and to try to get them out of that stupidity because I really think that even look, I'm not the smartest person alive, Bob, but, but I can still wrap my head around, you know, basic concepts. You got some
0: brains on you though.
10: Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But you know, <laughs> what what I'm trying to say is like I was never the smartest person. I don't understand all the terms that people use and I'm not like down with the jargon. And I may not be the most eloquently spoken person, but I can feel if something's right or wrong now inside of my like body. I can feel it.
0: And that was Push Push, a.k.a. Nikki St. Bruce from episode 61. This next clip is from episode 63 with Annie Brookstone. And it starts off with us chatting about how she got into sex writing for FHM and how she saw it as an opportunity to teach men to be better at sex and to respect women. And then that would obviously have a better impact on the woman that those men were having sex with. It also led to me eventually bringing up this one essay that she wrote for a blog or for I think it was for her blog uh, about anal sex that I thought was incredibly personal and emotional and honest and it just was a very different way of writing about sex you know it was very personal and yeah this all led to her basically accepting herself and what she likes and I think there's a lot that you can learn from this little clip as well as the entire episode. So here comes Annie Brookstone.
11: Which is kind of also how I got into the sex writing gig. So I had mentioned to an acquaintance working at FHM at the time, like kind of as a joke that I really wanted to be a sex riser, that that was, that was my next thing. Um, and a few, maybe a few weeks later, they contacted me and they said, "Okay, now's your chance." I spoke to Brendan Cooper, the editor, and we want you to write a sex feature for us. <laughs> so, what, so what,
0: what? Yeah. What went through your mind then? Like, were you like, "I don't know enough," or like, you know, how oh, do I write no. this? I was a giant was... slut.
11: So I knew enough. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I just, you know, for me, like. FHM was the perfect starting point to write about sex. And like, you know, I I can imagine people are listening to this and rolling their eyes because you know what the FHM readership is like.
0: And I was just like I was I was FHM readership at one point and <laughs> those sex columns gave good advice sometimes. Like genuinely, there's things I remember from then that girlfriends have been thankful for, you know, like ten years later. So true.
11: but I think the thing is they also some sites gave really bad advice. And like yes. that, that is <laughs> but, the thing. You could almost it. recognize the moves that somebody was pulling that they'd read in last month's FHM. <laughs>
0: like. Or uh, the, like, alphabet trick and stuff like that.
11: Exactly. Or the, like, uh, <laughs> nine shallow thrusts and then one deep one. Followed uh... by... you, everyone knows that one. <laughs> <laughs> once again,
0: useful when you're young, you know? Like, I, I think if FHM's target audience is 16 to 18-year-old boys, then, like, it was the perfect magazine. But once <laughs> you were a bit older than that, like, the information definitely wasn't that useful
11: true but I also think that you know when I at least got into it it was like such a kind of cookie cutter approach to sex it was like you know this five moves to drive her wild and it just assumed that every woman responded the same to everything so I I went into it thinking fuck I I have this readership of these like you know I would always imagine like some guy in his first year in university and res like you know and like maybe a conservative town like maybe Poch. <laughs> 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 like this is what I was imagining like the almost like lowest common denominator and I was like how am I going to turn this boy into a sex positive feminist like cool man <laughs> who who respects women isn't afraid to ask what partners need. Like, this this is what I wanted to do. And I was just like, ah, oh, at last.
0: <laughs> and the editorial let you do that, obviously.
11: They gave me complete freedom. After I submitted that one article for them, they called me into their offices and said, hey, we'd like to have you on retainer writing for us. Um Wow.
0: Okay, like, people people listening might not know, like, how big that is. Like, to just be put on retainer after one article is pretty gangster.
11: All right, and they're like, you have complete complete freedom. You can write about anything you like. Just send us a sex feature every month. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and so the adventure began from there.
11: Yeah, at that point, I was writing under a pseudonym because a big Family, thing- friends... Exactly, exactly. I, I had a teenage brother at the time. Um, I mean, he's 21 now. So, you know, like this like kid in my family who I didn't want his friends to be like, oh, I read about, about your sister's sex life the other day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Was uh, that a concern early on? Like, well, what were the concerns early on when you started out sex writing? Because obviously it's, it's an interesting thing to put yourself out there in that way obviously you're doing it for good intentions. You want to teach people things. You want to share information and it's information that needs to be yeah. shared, but on a personal level, there's a lot that must be going on inside.
11: I, th- I think, you know, like my brief from FHM was just make people laugh and make them horny, make them hard and make, <laughs> make them laugh. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't want to go out there pretending that I was like some sort of like sexologist or sex expert, like essentially, I wanted to go and say, "You know, these are my experiences as a twenty something year old who's fucking a lot <laughs> these These are things that I have found. Um obviously, if there was like research to back it up, great. But you know my thing my thing was never to be pretending that I'm some sort of expert that I'm not. It was like this is a learning experience for everyone. So here is something I've gone through, and this is what I've learned from it, and what you could possibly learn from it. And that basically put me in a position where I didn't want anyone to read a story and go, oh fuck, I think that's me. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want everyone who I've had sex with to be looking for, like, me, I don't know, talking about how great it was in the next issue of FHM.
8: <laughs> or how bad it was. Exactly.
0: <laughs>
12: <laughs>
11: Which yeah, is no, more often the case.
0: <laughs> I mean, I can understand that. Like, just through throughout my own history, like, there's been some times where it just hasn't been a good time. But that's that's why, like, what you do, I feel, has been so valuable, like, especially for me. And it's also one of the things that, like, I really admire and appreciate is how personal and open you can be with your writing. I, like... I'm a, this is awkward for me to bring up, but your piece on <laughs> your piece on anal sex was like something that like resonated with me. Like just the the like personal side of it more than you know the actual like anal sex side of it was like it was emotive and it was something that was like <laughs> shit. Like damn. <laughs>
11: Blushing
0: so hard right now. I'm sorry. Like as I said, like it's like awkward for me to bring up, but it was just like one of those things that, like, after I read that, like, I genuinely like admired you a lot more because it was such a personal thing and it was such a, a brave thing from my perspective to bring up to like a general public. So how do you do that? Like, how do you go? Like, I'm gonna share the story with everyone, especially once you started doing it under your own name.
11: You know, I think, I think what it was is that like. It, it's a learning curve for everyone, like I said. And, like, the more I learned about myself, the more I kind of realized that I am a bit of a freak. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am very kinky. I am, you, you know, I don't want to say I think about sex all the time because sometimes I think about snacks. But...
0: <laughs> uh, so coins, uh, Adidas song there
11: can be either or. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I just guess what it was for me is that I realized that you know I'm not trying to titillate people like I'm not I'm not trying to be like this like I don't know sex siren or some sort of like I just want to speak openly and frankly about shit in a way that like some pervy dude isn't gonna message me and be like oh I'm wanking over your content right now but at the same time, somebody can go, oh, fuck, that resonates with me. And that's real for me. <clears throat> because, like, especially, you know, with things like anal sex or kink or BDSM, like, people people do still, like, feel like there's a lot of stigma around it. And they do still think it's, like, this, like, really, like, risque, um, you know, I think... A big thing for me like especially in terms of kink and BDSM was like people people's ideas of it were informed by like basically Rammstein music videos and, <laughs> and CSI death scenes like you know CSI crime scenes yeah like like it's always just like this like really like I don't know intense um Damaging. Negative. Yeah. Risky. Yeah. Whatever. And I just wanted to go, hey, I'm a normal, normal ass person (laughs) in so many ways. And this is like an element of my life that feels as normal to me as anything else.
0: But it's just societal judgments, obviously, because people feel, I think kinks are like people responding to it negatively are usually somewhat turned on by it like that's my understanding of things and they don't know how to you know bring it up within themselves almost it's like people don't know how to deal with like how uncomfortable
11: some stuff can make them you know like and how yeah no I I completely agree with you and I think for me when I had decided that you know I wanted to use writing about sex to kind of like normalize things and I don't want to Say, educate people, but you know, make people think critically about it and actually make decisions and not just like default to whatever normal is, default to whatever feels most acceptable. And I think, I think doing that behind a pseudonym kind of reinforces that idea that there's something to be scared of.
0: And That was Annie Brookstone. If you enjoyed that little snippet, go check out the rest of the conversation on episode 63. This next clip is from episode 65 with Majozzi and it's him talking about this moment that we shared together that actually had an impact on his career. I didn't really know about it until he brought it up in this conversation and I think the advice that I gave him and the advice that I give towards the end of this conversation or this little clip is something that you should probably take with you and it might do you well. So here comes majority.
4: Dude, but I'll tell you one thing. I actually had a, a conversation with Brad Clinesmith uh, from Gangs of yeah, Belay yeah. about this the other day, dude. But one thing that was like the turn turning point for me was it, was, it was, so when I decided that I was, when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, it was like, am I going to, Be myself about this and make music that i enjoy that kind of has christian undertones um or am i just going to be a straight up gospel singer like what am i going to do you know and uh it was kind of like uh, there wasn't really at that time an example of anyone who had done it like was a matthew mall up there except for yes matthew mall except for him so he was the only one so we were just I don't know, I just have conversations with well, guys. in South you know, Africa, because right? Because back then,
0: overseas that had happened quite a bit. Like, I th- I think a lot of the music you probably I, grew up listening to had that.
4: Yeah, 100%, dude. So it was just that, like, would another South African, how, many, how much space is there in a already small industry for, yeah. for another person like that, you know? Well, so anyways, I remember one time, dude. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, you're right, dude, it did. But, so this is... What I'm saying, so like the one time I was playing at Cool Runnings and uh, and you were there. I was going to say, was um, that the show I was I, there? I, yes, you were there, dude. And you you said something to me. You were like, did you change some of your lyrics? And I was like, yeah, dude, I, I changed some of my lyrics. I, I didn't want to like offend you. And you said to me, you're like, no, don't change your lyrics just because I'm in the crowd, dude. Just be yourself, dude. That's what people want to see. They want to see you be yourself dude and that literally changed like my whole thinking dude (laughs) that one thing you said to me yeah i don't know if i've mentioned it to you but that one thing you said to me it was just like oh wow all i have to do is be myself and no matter if people agree with agree with me or or whatever like they'll respect me for being myself dude and that's what i found out throughout my whole career like people like, no one wants to be, like, an asshole or anything to you. Like, people generally aren't like that, you know. People generally are kind and they respect you, you know. And just because you don't agree on certain things doesn't mean that you can't um, have respect for each other. So that's the one thing I learned for you, dude. And it's honestly <laughs> been, like, uh, one of the most important things in my career, you know. So thank you.
0: <laughs> that actually, yeah, that really stokes me out. And it's, like, I mean, it's stuff I've come to on my own, like, as an atheist because, I'm sure you saw a lot of the stuff I used to post and like I've had a weird relationship when it does come to the religion thing. Cause I mean I was Christian for a while in my life and like it's been complicated, but I've also just learned like other people's, you know, journeys or their journeys, what they feel in this world is true is what they feel in this world is true. And you have to tell your truth. Like that's that's the one thing I know about yeah. art. Like it's it, for for art to be good for yourself like not even for anyone else and what I'm learning is the more honest you are with yourself and the more you try and just go towards the things you really care about and you really believe in other people will come on board and at the same time it doesn't even matter if other people come on board because you're going to be happy because you're doing the thing that you love like that makes you
4: 100 100% I couldn't say better myself dude All. Well, all of that is so, so true, you know? And that's what I try and tell uh, young musicians when they, like, say, ask me for advice. And it's like, you can be you can be the most technical singer or yeah. guitarist. You can have the most amazing voice. But if you're not being yourself, people will see right through that.
0: And once again, that was Majozzi from episode 65. Now, this next clip is from episode 79. It is with Pomlani pekoli and I understand this might be a difficult clip for some of you to listen to as Pomlani did tragically pass away earlier this year. This was the only conversation I actually got to have with Pomlani. I really wish that wasn't the case, but I'm grateful that we at least managed to, managed to have this chat and it was a great conversation, a really great back and forth. I loved it. And this particular clip, we talk about the inspiration for his book, Born Freeloaders, and discuss basically what it's like to be black and middle class growing up post apartheid and how that all factored into his book how you know it touches on nostalgia and at the end we also chat a little bit about self medicating with alcohol and drugs so here it comes with Pomlani Pukotli
12: Yeah i mean it's definitely inspired by like our time um, like growing up and like watching people forge new sort of cultures and industries um and exploring different different avenues and so you know the whole stupid like idea that like um rock and roll is white people music and all of that when you're like motherfucker have you even read a history book um yeah but like yeah so like and but it it being new here in south africa for me i think because south africa is such a weird place um and also like you know the new democratic dispensation allows us to express ourselves in different ways so i was um yeah i was definitely fascinated like so you know the cursed children of ham definitely draw um inspiration from the black jacks like you're you're spot on from the black jacks and like the brother moves on and like So, I'm thinking, so when I was thinking of like the the Afrikaans band, for instance, I'm like thinking Fokof, you know, and, exactly, and and Aking and shit like that. So, it was definitely a way of like mapping out, you know, the new, the new, or the way that like we came up and were forging like new ways of expression and and listening to culture and, and the growth of that, that evolutionary point of, of like artistic expression.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, I could see that and it felt so, You know, like, while it's clearly a black experience, it was was something I recognized so much of. And it also gave me insights into a lot of my peers, if that makes sense, because as a white guy, you know, like I've encountered so many of these characters in the book, but I don't know necessarily where they actually come from, what home life actually is. Mm. And I like that this book, for me, at least it gives an insight. And I can imagine for other people, it feels like their lives.
12: Yeah, I mean, like, what's what's I think what's kind of interesting about like what I'm playing with here is this um, idea of these black kids that are self-aware but aren't necessarily performing contrition and guilt over the fact that they've been born into like privilege, even though they like they are aware that you know the world is fucked up and it's racist and whatever. I and mean, you mean you get you get it from the name of the band, The Curse of Children of Ham. Yeah, but. Yeah, like, I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it was an opportunity to also explore those like little avenues of having to grow up in like westernized and, and white spaces and navigate that. And then what does that mean for you as a middle class black kid, you know? Um, and how does that look like as your own story?
0: Does, is it somewhat of an autobiography in a way?
12: <laughs> people always ask me this. Um, I don't see it. Uh, a lot of people think that it's, it's quite... Um, like it's quite biography driven and maybe w- w- like when i've got a little bit of distance from it i'll, I'll check it i'll see it but for now i don't like I, I just see i do see what i did was i constructed spaces that i knew and spaces that i'd been in cool. and sort of people and, that you knew uh people that i mean very 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 sort of um sur- among on a very surface level i'd take like i'd pick up mannerisms or i'd like take a story that i'd heard and like i'd twisted a little bit but yeah like the there are like i mean there are like evident for me archetypal characters that that sort of exist uh, in the story but yeah like those those archetypal characters become for me universal more than they do become yep. personal you know
0: okay i get that it's just i'm currently working on a movie based on You know my experiences in the scene and stuff and it's not necessarily autobiographical but Mm. yeah like it's i was actually reading your book and like feeling heavily inspired like tonight i'm definitely going to be working (laughs) on my script a bit more because yeah man you capture like to me like yeah like something that we like it's almost kind of nostalgia you know Mm. we have that 20-year cycle of nostalgia but that thing that hasn't necessarily been touched on yet in well that i haven't necessarily read i shouldn't say hasn't been touched on yet um because i know there are actually writers you actually mentioned a few of them who i need to check out uh in your interview with uh pan mcmillan but like yeah Mm -hmm. for me it was just like it's something that i've been trying to do at the moment for myself is create something from that time period you know Mm.
9: that's
0: like selects that shows people that I don't know just that freedom that we kind of had yeah and I do feel like there's like while there was a lot of responsibility there was also just this really free time
12: yeah well and and that's I think why I, I wrote these characters without this like performance of contrition you know of like being black and being privileged is because you know there was a there was a moment in time where we were just like running rampant and we were just like fucking expressing ourselves because we are like the original guinea pig generation i remember i started grade one in 94 you know um and so
0: I i was i was grade one or two as well yeah
12: yeah so like we're literally we literally are the guinea pigs of this whole shit and then to And then to like go off the beaten path even further and become reprobate and delinquents (laughs) and not follow everyone like, you know, on the the typical jock path to success um, and actually sort of like enter alternative spaces and look at that like as like a creative freedom is for me like so important to mark, you know, like, you know, for me, like, African Dope was a, it was a seminal moment in time. And, like, I remember yeah. being in high school and being like, oh, my fucking God, what's going on, you know? And then listening to underground rap music that's, like, literally made as underground rap music for, like, Groundworks and all of that. And then there was still the Pio show show um, that came on yeah, TV man. and just changed the whole fucking game, you know? So for me, yeah, like, that nostalgia is so important because there's so much, like, there's so much in there that, like, allowed us to like break free of like just the pedestrian middle-class suburban experience.
0: And another thing your book does deal with is obviously adolescent uh, partying and drinking and drugs and that sort of thing. It doesn't necessarily...
12: Euphoria, baby!
0: (laughs) I mean, that's, (laughs) I think that's just creative scenes, man. I think that's just music scenes. It's like, unless you're like part of the straight edge vibe... I think it is something that everyone gets caught up in for some period in time. We were kind of discussing it beforehand, you know, in your mid twenties. Mm. Everyone, well, not everyone, but everyone I know at least, like, and myself included, lost themselves a little bit in the drink, a little bit in the drugs. Some people mm. a bit more than others, you know. Mm. So, what was your what was your attitude coming into tackling those kind of topics in this book?
12: Yeah, man, self-medication because you know you you you're also everybody like. So there's the idea of like, you know, at school, you've got this like path charted out for you. You've got like this routine, you've got all these things that have like, that have been done for you, right? But then there's a lot of people. And um, like, I think that's where like this, this weird, like autistic sort of vibe becomes interesting for me is that I'm already questioning myself at school. Like, where do I exist? Where do I fit in the world? Where am I gonna go? What am I going to do with this? Cause this can't be it. <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so like, you know, like I started smoking weed when I was like properly, when I was like 15 and like, <laughs> Same. and when I was like averaging six joints a day, you know, and like, just like reading literature way beyond my years, but like <laughs> holding on to the little bits that I could.
0: Sounds like we had a similar upbringing.
12: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Like when, when you're like 15 and you're just like dropping the, uh, the, the name Jean-Paul Sartre um and i
0: i literally read a noam chomsky book on fucking economics in the mediterranean or something because like, <laughs> that was the only book in the library by noam chomsky <laughs> and i had no fucking clue what was going on but you know fucking yeah, no effects yeah. mentioned them so i was like cool
12: let's let's read some chomsky <laughs> exactly dude like and i was like i remember i started black skins white masks when i was like 15 um with franz none and you know, like I was like I could grab some of these concepts, but I couldn't really. But then also then I'm like, oh shit, do me uh, when do me was a part of the volume. Yeah. It was like mentioning like Franz Fanon and I'm like, oh shit, nigga, don't worry, I'm already on that, bro. Like, um I'm already there. So like I'm like, okay, cool, but, like that's a that's a good place to, to go. But I mean there's also like this like existential angst and dread that comes with with being a teenager, right? Because <laughs> this is when you have to forge your identity and you start you're being forced to start thinking like almost as a human. And, and you find yourself in the scene where um, smoking, drinking, taking drugs is like the norm. I also wanted to explore the idea of recreational drug use and what does that mean? What, and what does, what does it look like to like just be against it the whole time? Or can it actually serve a purpose? I think the, the addiction sort of narrative and the, the legal sort of narrative is sort of played out. And we yeah. need to really interrogate that a little bit more because we've got the like the wildest constitution in that it's like so goddamn progressive, but we're still coming back coming from a Calvinist framework and influence of like heavy Christian moral duty that then doesn't allow people to be who they are, rather enforces them like to be who the state wants them to be. So it's like. I think we're coming from like a very, very interesting like background and history. And yeah, man, drugs saved the kids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you want to hear more from that conversation, check out episode 79 with Pomilani Piccoli. Now this next clip is with the one and only Moonchild Sonnelli. It's from episode 81. And while I was originally going to post her talking about how she came to work with Beyonce, this clip actually, I think, explains a lot of her rebellious nature and it's explains yeah like how her mom instilled this radical ideology into her of never being a follower always being a leader and i think that has worked out pretty well for moonchild sennelli that is like one of your powers essentially the ability to laugh at yourself so it means because you have faced a lot of criticism like <laughs> yeah. over the years but you always managed to like just throw it back in people's faces so i assume that uh-huh. comes from being young
13: Absolutely. I come from having to like, um if I'm un- misunderstood, I can defend myself. At least I have a channel. So I'm going to win at dance competitions. I'm going to win at whatever. That at least I was allowed because I never went to Shabin's. I never was sent to buy cigarettes. My mom literally like sheltered me. And she still also didn't teach me how to wash dishes or cook because she wasn't. In- grooming me for a man later in life but she groomed me for myself and being able to and to be able to be independent as a girl, child and um, I feel like so by the time anyone tells me anything in the world about what they think of me, the one person who bred me to be this and the one person I would have done anything in the world for besides not be happy is my mother and she's the one who gave me a blessing so everyone else will fall in line because they literally have to adjust to me because I'm not gonna adjust to them. If one thing, another Thing that always sticks out is when um, I remember when I was younger, my mom would shout at me for walking behind a group of friends, even if you're going to buy sweets, like innocent things. She'd say, "You never follow. You always are in the line, learning what the leader is doing for them to follow you, or you're in, in the you're in the front and they're following you, but you never follow." So I get more scolding for that more than anything I would have done that's wrong. But for mm-hmm. following, she would just like, "No, you do not follow." So I then grew up as a rebel, I think, in general, but one that was not. I wasn't rebelling against things I wasn't allowed to do. I was rebelling against what everyone thought was cool to do. And I would just do my own. But my mom instilled that thing of never following. You don't have to follow. You mustn't follow. Not you don't have to. You must never follow. So without me knowing, I think it's just like one of those things as a kid that you, that just get instilled in you. So then I stayed a virgin in school. Everyone was having sex, didn't have the FOMO. Everyone was clubbing. I was at home and either dance competitions, traveling the country or oh, I so the space you created for me didn't create, didn't help me, didn't make me have FOMO for the things that all the other kids would do. So I just like, I, yeah, I just go home, watch porn if I'm done with rehearsal. Put my fairy tale <laughs> book. And when the girls that engage in sex are asked what is a cook? and they don't know, and I tell them they think I'm lying because I'm not having sex. I'm just like y'all are dumb, but it's fine because I can't now explain I'm watching porn. You know, might be in more trouble. So,
0: but yeah. <laughs> so so obviously, well, what was the situation there? So were you wanting to have sex, but were worried because everyone else was doing it? That it was a thing mm-hmm. that you wouldn't want to do, or. Yeah, how like what was uh, your thinking at that
13: time? It was I don't know if it was a thinking because of something that was instilled by my mom to me. I think I just okay. naturally didn't find things that and it wasn't peer pressure because peer pressure would make make me force or whatever. It wasn't, do you know, like when you just do things your way because of how you've been brought yeah. up. So it wasn't necessarily a thought process. I just wasn't interested. I thought boys were dumb, and I'd get their numbers and stalk them with different accents on the phone. That was my fun. <laughs> so like do you know what I mean so it's it's, oh. it's not like I, did, I said I'm not going to do this because they're all doing it I just wasn't interested because it was just like oh wow well, you guys think this is the coolest because you're all doing it um, smoking I wasn't interested because not everyone was really doing it I just wasn't interested so it's like I rebelled with a cause I didn't rebel without a cause I didn't just because now they're not drinking I'm drinking it wasn't like that but it was like a rebellious personality but that had a cause because it wouldn't rebel towards fucked up shit that creates a FOMO that is unnecessary. And maybe because there was never enough time for me to be in the streets to be like the other children. That's what my mom took me away from. So therefore that already protected me because I already had a channel. I didn't have to go to a shipping or have to date to, to have to spend my time. My time was already occupied. So I didn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't bored to try out shit that I I would have if I had time. Nor did I have former, because I could have dated at the dance class. So it was like my time was occupied with things that were so much more fun and interesting and were building my personality to become the person I am now.
0: And that was episode 81 with Moonchild Cinelli. Go check that out if you want to hear more. Up next, we have Hallie Haller from episode 90. And I'm going to keep this short because it is a short clip that basically explains how she put her short film Belovedly on the shelf for four years after shooting it and how lockdown allowed her to look at it with fresh eyes. Here comes Hallie, Hallie.
14: So a, bit, a little bit of background on this film is that I actually shot it like, it's nearly four years ago now, and um, I only released it last, last year. And that's because we shot it, I tried to edit it, I had a corporate job that I was really struggling to love. Is the most euphemistic way for <laughs> that. Um, I just like got sad about my inability to make it what I wanted it to be. And then because we were in lockdown, I opened up this film again that I really thought was terrible and gone like laid to waste. And because I'd forgotten exactly how perfect I wanted it to be, um, because I was less of a perfectionist about it because of the time, you know, that had passed, I was able to put it together. And that's, I think that's such an important thing, like to be able to take space from something and that being part of the process and not punishing yourself too much for it. Yeah, yeah. So that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it wasn't something that I just like did overnight with a couple of friends and then it was an instant like success,
0: you know? If you want to hear more of that conversation, check out episode 90 of the podcast with Hallie Haller. And that brings us to episode 94 with Luis Gola. Now this one also had many, many quotables throughout the conversation, but I decided to focus on something I've wanted to chat to Luiso about for quite a while, ever since he posted about Twitter isn't real. I wanted to dig into that and figure out what he meant by that. So this next clip is about the very real effects of social media on his life, but how they might not necessarily affect everyone else. Here it comes with Luisa Gola. You're mentioning getting sucked into social media just now, but you're also someone who has very much advocated that Twitter isn't real. So where where do you stand on that these days?
9: Um, I mean, when I said it isn't real, I was just saying I was talking particularly in South African contexts. Remember, sure. a majority of the people do not have Twitter. The majority of South Africans don't use Twitter. The majority of South Africans struggling to access internet, So I think it's. It's amount to just abject poverty to not like be able to access information on 2021. It's yeah. worse than like it's worse than famine. It's information the
0: inequality that it creates,
9: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's not like we're not capable of it's just we've we elected the wrong people, so they don't. It's not, it's not like. It's a crazy thing. In South Africa 2021, and someone and people can say and confidently say that I can't access that job and, and opportunity because I don't have the internet and all applications are online. So that one excludes me. That's a crazy thing. Yeah. That's crazy considering you had a, it shouldn't be like a thing that stands in people's way of just surviving. You know. I love it. Once it's that, I'm with you 100. It's the it's, it's the it's the it's the most it's the most painful thing to watch. It's, it's painful to watch cell phone companies overcharge for, for this data. It's, it's over it's painful to watch government just be lax and about a situation that a majority. Because once you have the internet, the brain is in that world, and it's, allows you to create businesses and allows you to, you know what
0: I mean? Yeah, man. Half my life has been because of the internet. Like everything yeah. I'm doing, this, like, but everything I've learned in the last 10 years has come from access to the internet. Not even 10 years, 15 years. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. 100% the with way, you there, man.
9: The way money moves, the way, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Everything is, is, is on the internet. Now for you to not be on the internet is... Uh, so... But with the statements, you know, Twitter
0: is not real and with this disconnect that there is. So there's obviously this portion of society and culture that thinks that they're moving things forward in South Africa because they've got access and they can talk to each other all day and, you know, they're part of the conversation. But how do you see it from the other side then? Because in reality, you know, like I think, especially in stand-up comedy, you kind of see that South Africa is many different things, but that people... On the ground, aren't experiencing the same thing that the middle classes necessarily are. And so, is that kind of the whole Twitter isn't real thing and that it doesn't have necessarily the effect that people think it does or people that are involved in it think it does?
9: Yeah, yeah. So, Twitter would have an effect in my life because if I'm being honest, a lot of the people that consume what I do on stage, people who can pay 200 bucks for a ticket to see me, are generally middle class ish people, right? Like, and so that's my, that, that would be in turn my audience. So if I do something that gets me canceled or whatever the case is, that's definitely my reality because those are the people I've connected with. But there's people who just, it wouldn't affect them at all. It'd be like, yeah, I could still go to perform in the rows of Limbabwe, but people will pay 80 bucks, 40,000 people, I get my check. Or, you know, they, there's a way. That doesn't include the people that are on Twitter. That's what I meant.
0: And that was Luisa Gola from episode 94. And that is it. That is episode 100 done and dusted. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to all of this. I hope you got a lot of value out of that, out of this look back at the last two and a half years of this humble little podcast. And I look forward to seeing many... Many, many of you along this journey to episode 1000. Enjoy the rest of your day. I hope uh, load shedding doesn't get you down. And I hope uh, we all get vaccinated real soon. Later.